begin a, a new series in our equipping hour this morning um, on uh, gathering gold and harvesting honey, getting the most out of God's word. We're going to be studying and learning how to uh, truly find that gold and enjoy that honey in God's word. So I encourage you to join us every Sunday morning at nine o'clock. It's worth the extra hour, uh, truly. Uh, we already had a wonderful time this morning. And uh, if you are teaching in any capacity in this church, you're required to be there um, because you can't give what you don't got, right? So uh, it is our expectation that you would be there and that you would greatly benefit from that. Turn with me, please, to Exodus Chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5, continuing our long trek through this book that we just began. Some weeks we take large chunks, some, te- some weeks we look at a verse. And this morning is, uh, we're going to be looking at all of chapter 5, because it's really just one major event in the life of the Israelites We're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 5. I'll read beginning in verse 1. It says, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw, to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making, which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it, because they are lazy. Therefore they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor Be heavier on the men and let them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not completed your required amount, either yesterday or today, in making brick as previously? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work. For you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble, because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. 
When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to his people. And you have not delivered your people at all. The title of this sermon is Enduring Persecution. Enduring Persecution. And I desire this morning, dear saying, that you would be prepared to face persecution. If you're a true believer in Christ, true follower of Him, living rightly, righteously, and being an ambassador for His gospel, you will face persecution. Jesus Himself promises that. And so I want you to be prepared when that day comes. You know, there's an old story about a sailor who once challenged a chaplain of the ship. And he asked this question, how is it that you are always telling us to trust Jesus Christ? Did you ever see him yourself? The chaplain replied, no, I, I never did see him. Then how can you tell a man to trust in someone you have never seen? I don't see any sense in that, the sailor said. The chaplain replied, well, when your ship is in a storm, what sense is there in telling your men to drop the anchor when they cannot see the ground? Why would you trust your ship and your life and your crew to a ground that you have never seen and never can see? Oh, said the sailor, well, we, have, we go by chart. We have charts for that. Exactly, said the chaplain. Holding up his Bible, he says, and I too go by a chart. And it is a perfect one. It tells me of the only sure ground of my salvation and my soul. The nature and the character of God. My faith, like your anchor, takes hold of what is unseen, but yet is very real. And so I can ride out the storms of life in peace and safety. Christian, do you know where to drop your anchor of faith when the storms of life come? If you try to get stability in life from just wishful thinking, you won't last. If your soul's anchor tries to grip to the ground of just a positive outlook, you will be shipwrecked. But if you anchor your faith in the truths of Scripture and in the character of God, you can withstand the greatest of trials, even persecution. First of all, we see in this passage that we need to know the reason for persecution. Why? So often when trials, specifically persecution, comes, our first question is, why God? In fact, that's exactly what Moses did in verse 22. Why God? We need to know the reason for our persecution. This is one ground for your anchor to lay hold of. Verse 1, the passage begins, And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh. Now, afterward what? After what is the question. This points back, of course, to chapter 4, verse 30 and 31. There it says, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had given to Moses. 
Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. This is the Israelites. And so the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and they worshipped. There was this excitement that just happened. Even this relief, this, this, this gasping of air, finally, we have hope that this affliction will finally end. Finally, God is coming through with his promises. At last, my children don't have to face another year of, of toil and heartache and poverty. At last, I can rest. We can have a land of our own. At last, I can worship God freely and not have to do it in secret. Now, at last, I can have a relationship with Yahweh, God, I am, instead of being bombarded with these idols of Egypt, at last. That's what just happened in the context of Exodus chapter 5. But now, after all that excitement, after all that bowing low, after all that worshiping, after all the, the positive feelings and the good experience that that was, now it seems like those feelings of excitement, relief, and hope were all in vain. After all of that, after all the good responses that Israel had to God's command to come and worship him, now we see Pharaoh apparently putting a roadblock in the plans of God, putting a barrier between the Israelites and freedom. What was God up to? Was God simply overpowered by Pharaoh? Did he not take into account this king? Why is God letting this cruel persecution happen when he just promised to deliver them. Christian, uh, this is a good reminder for us before we dive too deep into this passage. Don't interpret those initial experiences of prosperity or success as a guarantee for future prosperity or success. Specifically, when we first are saved, when we first turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, don't be surprised that after some time that, that honeymoon phase of that new spiritual life in Christ fades. And your Christian happiness is now mixed with frustration and difficulties of life. This is what happens in the life of God's people. It's never always easygoing. We were not guaranteed a carefree, struggle-free life. That life is to come. This life trains us to plead and to anticipate that life. Now, one reason for this mixture of happiness and exhilaration and now this frustration from the hands of Pharaoh is that we're still in this world that is so full of sin and sinners and Satan. We see this in Pharaoh's words himself. As he replies to Moses and Aaron as they communicate God's command to Pharaoh, let my people go, that is a command to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? that I should obey him. I don't know the Lord, he says again. This admission of Pharaoh is, is so poignant. It's so on the nose. The reason why he won't go along with God's plan, the reason why he will not obey God's command to let his people go, because he has no relationship with God. You see, this present world lies under the power 
of the evil one, Satan, the devil. 1 John 5.19 Satan himself is called the ruler of this world, John 12.31. He is the god of this world. And as the god of this world, little g, he actively is blinding the minds of unbelievers so they won't see the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. This is why in Ephesians 2, unbelievers are called sons of disobedience. It's because they are marked by this dominating characteristic that they just go along in Satan's disobedience to God. This world is under the sway of the evil one. It's full of sinners who are under his sway that go along with Satan's influence over this world. People that blindly just follow his orders. Orders which directly contradict the clear teachings of God's word. We see that in Pharaoh. He is blinded to the reality of the one true God. He doesn't know him. He doesn't see any reason why he should obey him. And so he rejects God's command. He sees himself as God, himself as king. I'm ruler of my life. Nobody else. I answer to no one. That's the course of this world. The societies that cover the face of this globe are under the direction and the influence of, of, of the devil. There is this satanic push away from God. Just one example of how we see this are in, is in the priorities of verse 4 and 5. Look at verse 4 and 5. But the king said to the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. Work. 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 This is one way of countless that Satan draws and, and, and pulls the attention of the world away, away from God, to anything else but Him. It's work. Now, of course, it's too much to say and, and to use this passage to preach things like, well, that's, this, this passage right here is why we don't work on Sundays. We don't do that from this text. But what we can say from this text is that sinful men, governments populated by sinful men, institutions managed by sinful men, societies filled by sinful men certainly do value work, money, just stuff more than the call to worship God. That's clear. Satan has such an influence on Egypt that the most important thing in the eyes of this man, Pharaoh, in the eyes of the Egyptians, was riches. That was what life was all about. Gaining as many riches as they can, making a name for themselves, making their name eternal, essentially. They would leave their mark on history because of how great they are and their riches are. And society just goes along with that. There are many other things that the enemy uses to sway society away from a relationship with God, to, to keep them comfortable in that state of not knowing this Yahweh. Things like entertainment, sexual fulfillment, relationships, fame, 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, a boastful pride of life. Money, possessions, materialism, anything but God. That is the direction of this world. And this is why followers of God, followers of Christ, are persecuted. Because we live in a world whose ruler and population are obsessed with sin, obsessed with everything else but God. The true follower of God is, as it were, obsessed with God. And because of that, we're seen as fools. We shine like this light that shines upon the foolishness and the emptiness of their pursuits. And the world hates that. The world demands allegiance. Don't you feel that tug? Don't you feel that, that demand of the world? Subscribe to our teachings. Promote our views. And if you don't, then you're a fool. If you don't, you must be a cruel kind of person. Christian, don't you see that this is not your home? Have you noticed that? Or have you so been swayed by the, the current of this world that you're just drifting along? That you see no problem with, with amassing riches for yourself as a Christian? This world is not our home, church. This is not what we live for. So we see here, Pharaoh doesn't know God. He doesn't know God. He doesn't care that, you know, the, the God of the universe is commanding him to let his people go. And he doesn't even care that harm might come to the Hebrews if they don't obey God's call to come and worship him. In verse 3, Moses and Aaron plead and word it a different way, but yet still the same plea. Well, maybe you don't know the, the Lord, the God of Israel, but at least you, you understand who we are. We're the Hebrews, and our God has met with us. Please, please let us go a three days journey. Otherwise, if we don't go, he will fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. And even with that plea, Pharaoh is unmoved. No mercy, no concern for God or for God's people. And his response to, these, to the command of God, to the pleads of God's people, his response is cataloged for us in verses 4 through 14. Essentially, he commands them to get back to work. But not only this, he will make their task more time-consuming because he, he won't provide the, the, the binding materials, the straw for the bricks that gives strength to the, to the brick. He won't provide all the materials anymore. Now they have to provide their own material on top of what they were already doing, making the bricks. They have to now go gather the material, the building materials, and then make the bricks, but they're not giving any extra time to do so. Verse 8 is really, we really see the, 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 the view of Pharaoh. Verse 8, the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Literally, Pharaoh saw the people as idle, I-D-L-E, that they're just sitting around. Apparently, you Egyptians, or excuse me, apparently you uh, Israelites, you Hebrews, 
have nothing better to do. You have all this time on your hands. You're, you're lazy. You're idle. You're just sitting around. You got time to go a three days journey and worship this God that I don't even know. I'll put a fix to that. I'll make it so that you have no time to even think about worshiping God. So he fills their time with extra labor. Don't just make bricks, but also gather the materials for yourself and then make the bricks. And by the way, you have no extra time. And by the way, you have to make as many bricks as you made before. Because apparently you're just sitting around on the job. And if you don't meet your quota, I'll beat you. This is cruel. This is evil. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. What would you think? I think most of us. Why me? Why me? What did I do to deserve this? I've just been making bricks this whole time. Why are you making it harder for me and and you're threatening to beat me? What did I ever do to deserve this? We would take it personally, right? Our focus would be on self, on us, our pain, our grief, our wounds. Isn't that us? When trials come, when persecution comes, when somebody reviles us, when our spouse mistreats us, when, when, our, when our boss speaks evil about us, or abuses us, uh, when a stranger mocks us for our faith, when, 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 the whole, when this world system, this society, seems to be opposing us and how we want to live for God freely, why me? We look to self. We take it personally. God here, is redirecting our focus off of ourself in this passage. Taking our eyes off of self, off of our wounds, our pain, our hurt, onto Him. Because really the reason for our persecution, the reason for the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites' persecution, is God. It's not about us. It's not about the Israelites. Notice the focus on the Lord, on God. Verse 1, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. Verse 3, they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he might deal with us, fall upon us with pestilence or sword. And then even down in verse 8, the quota of bricks that we just read, the quota of bricks is going to be the same, he says, because, middle of verse 8, because they are lazy, therefore they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. In this dialogue, back and forth, the central figure is not Moses, not Aaron, it's not Pharaoh, it's not Egypt, it's not the Israelites, it's God. He is the central figure in this passage and every passage. You see, because Satan is the great enemy of God, And because he directs the evil movements of societies, and because he has great influence on the thinking of sinful man, the world and its people cannot help but hate God. It's him that they hate. It's not you. It's who you represent, if you're representing him. Christ says this to us, New Testament saints. In Luke 21, 17, he says, And you will be hated by all because of my name. 
John 15, 21, But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. See that? It's almost as if he was reading his Bible. Same wording. Because they don't know me, they will persecute you, but really they're persecuting me. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's one thing to be reviled, persecuted, mocked, rejected. It's another thing to experience all those things for his namesake. That is persecution. If you're late for work and your boss chides you for being late to work, that's not persecution. If you cut somebody off and um, they respond on the road with um, not a thumbs up, that's not persecution. It is when you experience these things, experience any form of suffering because of the name of Christ, because of the name of God. That's persecution. And when those times come, Christian, as you are an ambassador of Christ, as you share the gospel, because that's your calling, as you do that, expect opposition. Expect it. But know that the reason is not because of you. It's because of who sent you. Moses himself even understands this reality, that this persecution was because of the name of God. Look at, look at verse 23. Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm. It doesn't just say, ever since I came to Pharaoh and asked him to let us go, he has done harm to his people. No, he understands that it's not the request so much to let, him, to let them go that that Pharaoh is so um, filled with, with, with violence towards, it is this op- opposing God, this, this one who challenges Pharaoh's rule, this one who, who claims and demands obedience from Pharaoh, who stands over him as his ruler. It's God. It's him. And Moses understands, because I came in your name, Yahweh, Pharaoh hates us now. Christian, we must not be surprised when we are persecuted because we claim the name of Christ. Rather, we should be surprised when we never experience persecution. Because that likely means that we're not claiming the name of Jesus Christ. Bring Jesus up in conversations. I think sometimes we don't because we're afraid of the persecution. But Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. But don't worry, it's not not against you. Don't take it personally, it's against me. I'll take the blows. I'll take the hurt. I'll take the, the, the scorn. You just pass that on to me. So bring Jesus up in conversations, Christian. Tell others about their need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Tell them that they were born in sin and that because of their life of sin, they have incurred, they have earned this paycheck from God and that paycheck is eternal judgment in hell. But they can hand that paycheck off to Jesus Christ. He received it into his account. It was deposited to him on the cross and he suffered the infinite judgment of God on the cross in their place. Tell them that. And if they would just put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, then they can be free of the judgment of God. They can live a life that is, that is not in constant fear and dread of the coming judgment, they can be freed from that and they can enjoy life and communion and fellowship with God who created them. 
They can experience his forgiveness. They can be his child. Tell them. When they ask you what you did over the weekend, tell them what you did here. Tell them what you learned. Tell them that you gathered with the church. When God heals you from COVID, give them the praise. When your bills are paid, give them the credit. When persecution comes, know that the reason is not really you, but the name of Jesus Christ. So, we know why persecution comes, but sometimes it may be a surprise of where the persecution comes from. That's our second point this morning. Know the source of persecution. Know the source of persecution. In verse 15, the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are being beaten, but it is the fault of your own people. Now, of course, we would expect persecution uh, from those who are not followers of God, right? Of course. Um, even family and friends who don't know, like Pharaoh, who don't know our God, who do not have that saving relationship with Christ, of course we should expect, it hurts, but we should expect persecution at some level from them. They don't know our God. We see this in Pharaoh, in Pharaoh's taskmasters. The Israelites beg and plead for mercy from Pharaoh, and they, but they know that this cruel edict was from him. That's why they go to Pharaoh, you see? They see that their bad situation is because of Pharaoh and his people. Look at verse 16. It is, at the very end, it is the fault of your people. It's you guys. It's because of you we're being beaten. It's because of you that we're experiencing this. Now, of course, Pharaoh, in verse 17, he blame shifts, right? This is the response of sin, blame shifting. He basically says, no, no, it's your fault. You're lazy. You're the lazy ones. It's your fault that you're experiencing this suffering. And again, in verse 17, it's connected still to their desire to worship the Lord. See? Verse, verse 18, again, Pharaoh gives that, that command to just get back to work. Get back to work. Get your straw, fill your quota. Verse 19, they, they've heard the command directly from the horse's mouth, you could say, directly from Pharaoh. And so they say, we're in trouble. They saw that they were doomed. If this is true, we've heard it from Pharaoh himself. There's no confusion now. We're doomed. But notice their response. Verse 20 and 21. They left Pharaoh. They go and they meet Moses and Aaron. And the word, therefore, when they, when they met Moses and Aaron, it's not that they just happened to cross paths with Moses and Aaron, and so they stroke up a conversation. No, the word is actually they intentionally walked straight to Moses and Aaron. What do they do? They call on God to judge them to judge them for the trouble that they've caused in their lives. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, how they've changed their tune, right? Remember in verse 16? Whose fault was it? The Egyptians' fault. But now in verse 21, 
Whose fault is it? Moses and Aaron, it's your fault. They don't know who to blame for persecution. But not only this, the, the Israelites, they have now gone from being the persecuted to now being the persecutors. They are now the ones dealing harshly with God's people, Moses and Aaron. They concluded that it was Moses and Aaron's fault that they, that they stunk to Pharaoh and that all of Egypt is now hostile towards them because of what Moses and Aaron has done. They didn't ask for this. It's your fault. It's the leader's fault. You know, thinking big picture, from Cain to the brothers of Joseph, these Israelites are continuing that sinful lineage of people who continually reject God's messengers. Acts 7.52, Stephen asked the Israelites in his sermon, which of the prophets is your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. It's easier to ask them, who did you not persecute, rather than the long list of who they did persecute. This was the mark of, of the people of Israel. James 5.10 says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See, James is saying, think about the prophets who speak God's word, who speak on God's behalf. Think of them. And as you're going through suffering, look at them and how they went through suffering because they spoke for God. This has been the, the, the experience of all of God's messengers throughout time. Throughout the ages of time, those who spoke truly the word of God have been persecuted. And sometimes that persecution comes from within the quote-unquote church. Professing followers of Christ who hate the teachings of Christ. They take it out on the heralds of Christ. This is, what Matthew, this is what it says in Matthew 13, where Christ reminds us that there will always be tares among the wheat. We shouldn't be surprised that sometimes opposition comes from where we least expect it. Those people that we trusted before, those people that we uh, listened to before, those people that uh, seemed to be in arms with us, locking arms in, in ministry together before, we should not be surprised when, if there comes a time where because they reject the true teaching of God's word, they're now the opposition. Now, so the, the, the sources of persecution are the world, professing believers, but there's a higher source, isn't there? The ultimate source of all things is God himself. And Moses knows this. Look briefly at verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord. And he says, why is this happening? Moses knew that the ultimate source of all things, the, the, the highest source of everything in this world, is God. This understanding of God, this theology comes from God's name that Moses just learned. I am Yahweh. As I am, God is above all things, before all things. In him all things exist and hold together. He is the source of all things. He is even the one who brings harm and disaster. That's why Moses goes to God. You see, the Israelites, they go to Pharaoh because they think Pharaoh's the source. And then they go to Moses and Aaron because they think Moses and Aaron is the source. Moses knows God's really the source of this. 
If this is new to you, I would remind you of Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, where it says, I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Amos 3.6 says, If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? And if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Church, our God is sovereign. We need to remember that. There is nobody like him. So our doubts and, and, and suspicions of God are proof that we don't see God really and rightly. Our tremblings and our, and our fears in, in suffering and persecution are proof that we have too small of an understanding of who our God really is. As you claim the name of Christ, Christian, know that persecution will come, but know also that it comes from the loving hands of God himself. And your heavenly Father will not allow the persecution to crush you. That's not his plan. That's not his intent. He loves you too much. Know who it comes from. Know the source. And lastly, what do we do when persecution comes? Well, we'll look at Moses. Know how to respond to persecution. What does Moses do in verse 22? He goes straight to God. He goes straight to God. It says, then Moses returned to the Lord. He went to God because, as we just saw, he knew that this was from God. So why would I go to Pharaoh, right? Why would Moses go to Pharaoh and ask why this is happening? I'm going to go to the true source. Why go to another man and ask why this is happening? I'm going to go to the true source. Moses went to the one who was ultimately in control of the persecution, God. And notice what Moses does in verse 22 and 23. He simply asks God, why? Why are you allowing this, God? Why did you send me? Why have you not delivered us already, God? With all of these questions, it's easy to ridicule Moses for his apparent doubt. But notice, at the end of verse 23, he brings up the promise. You have not delivered your people at all. That's what you said you were going to do. You promised, God. See, this is what, what Moses does. He reminds himself and reminds God of God's promise. God, you said you deliver us, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, we know that these chapter divisions that we have in our Bible are not in the original writings of the book. They were later added to help us navigate the, the Bible. And so this break here between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is actually kind of awkward because it's a break right in the middle of a conversation. So just briefly, chapter 6, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of his hand. It's not going to be just this. I'm not going to have to pry Israel out of his hands. He's going to throw them out. Essentially, God's reply to us, to Moses, when we're suffering, when we're being persecuted for his name, God's response is simply, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. Why are you, why are you talking like, like this is the end? It's not the end. I still have more to do, God says. Now you're going to see. That was the setup. Christian, how do you respond to persecution? You need to go to God and then wait. After all, this is exactly what our Lord Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, You have been called for this purpose. The purpose in context is to suffer 
For you have been called for this purpose to suffer, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You go to God and you just trust him. You trust him. Christian, do you know where to drop your anchor of faith when the storms of life come? Mere wishful or positive thinking will leave you shipwrecked. But if you anchor your faith in these truths, in the truths of God's word, and in the character of God himself, you can withstand the greatest trial, even persecution. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we confess, Lord, our history is, is one where we reject your word, we doubt you, we question your promises, we try to do things our way, we don't open our mouths because we're afraid of what might come. We don't claim the name of Christ publicly because we're convinced it's just going to bring trouble. Lord, forgive us for our hesitancy, our doubts, our suspicions of you. Lord, when we doubt you, we're, 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 it's like we're being suspicious that you're not really good. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Is he really good? God, give us faith to trust you. Lord, give us a bigger view of you. May we, may we claim the promises as Moses did. May we remind you and ourselves of the great promises in every page of Scripture. God, you said you'd be with us. You said you'd help us. You said you'd provide for us. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. You said you'd give me words. You said you would be victorious. You said I'm victorious in this world. You said you would give me victory over sin. You said you would save my children. Oh God, help us remember your promises. All your promises are yes in Christ. You've given us him, the most precious gift. How are you going to withhold all these other things from us, Lord, that you've promised us in your word? Give us faith. Help us to trust you. And Lord, as our faith deepens, may we just open our mouths. May it be liberating to us where we're just not afraid anymore. I can speak of Christ and come what may. I love him too much to not tell people about him. Oh God, do this work in your people. I pray, Lord, that you would make us ambassadors, Lord. 